Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. And on this show... The president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Donald Trump will be the 45th president of the United States. Our Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan, fills us in on the market reaction. The markets expect that Mr. Trump and the Republican Congress will push through very big tax cuts and infrastructure spending. And just months after saying the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal would be ratified... Nothing's easy in the U.S. Congress right now. Maybe there was a time when it was, but I haven't seen it. It, it sure hasn't been easy since I've been president. All right? But we'll, eventually we'll get it done. President Obama has admitted defeat. Simon Rabinovich tells us what that means for trade across the Pacific. It's a deal that has 12 member nations. And so the other 11, there's a chance that they might be able to band together uh, and salvage something from the wreckage. Finally, Stan Pinyal discusses chaos in India after the government dumps the 500 and 1,000 rupee notes. We're now at, at a week's inconvenience, and some people are saying this could go on until the end of the year or even further. But first, on November the 9th, following the American election, Global markets went into convulsions, a pattern all too familiar in our post-Brexit world. Mr Trump's election victory had been expected to provoke huge sell-offs. In fact, the response has been far more mixed. Joining me now to talk about the market reaction is Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist. Philip, in broad terms, how have the markets reacted? We've had a huge sell-off in the government bond markets. So at the low in the middle of the night on Wednesday morning, the Treasury bond yield was at 1.73%. It jumped to 2.26% yesterday, falling back a bit today. Uh, so that's a, a big move in the context of very low yields. And we saw that repeated pretty much around the world in government bond markets. But equities did much better. So the immediate response of the futures market was to show a huge fall in US equities. By the time the markets actually opened, they rose and have risen further. So why is all this? The main reason is that the markets expect that Mr. Trump and the Republican Congress will push through very big tax cuts and infrastructure spending. That will boost the American economy, uh, in the short term at least, uh, but of course widen the deficit. And that's why bonds are taking alarm at it and possibly might lead to some more inflation. In contrast, of course, it would be good for economic growth and thus the equity markets. What, what about in emerging markets? I mean, in Mexico, Indonesia, countries like that, there's been a lot of nervousness reflected in currency movements and so on. Yes, they have behaved more as everybody expected beforehand. The Mexican peso being the kind of canary in the coal mine for uh, a Trump victory before the election and sold off again after to an all-time low. But more broadly, we've seen a sell-off in currencies 
bonds and equities. Now, some of this is automatic. So to the extent that money is coming back into the dollar because people think the US equity market will do well or because one of the tax changes that Mr. Trump wants to push through is to encourage companies to repatriate their earnings from overseas to the US, that will push the dollar up and pushing the dollar up pushes emerging market currencies down. Similarly, when treasury bond yields rise, then bond yields rise elsewhere automatically and prices fall. I suspect there'll be quite a lot of volatility as it becomes clear who his cabinet picks will be and, of course, all the way till January, February when he actually has to turn what he wants into actions and legislation. I remember just a couple of weeks back you wrote a column about market turning points. Have we just seen one, do you think, or is it far too early to tell? I think it's a bit early to tell, but yes, that's all to the market turning point idea that we are moving away from a world where people are most worried about deflation and sluggish growth to one where they might be worried about um, inflation or welcoming reflation, perhaps, and hoping for more economic growth. I think we need to exercise a bit of caution. The forces that caused most developed economies to grow slowly are to do with demography and low productivity. Uh, To the extent that infrastructure spending uh, might boost productivity, that might help. To the extent that big tax cuts for the rich uh, come in, that probably won't help with those factors at all. So we can't be sure. We've seen, of course, huge stimulus programs in Japan, for example, without really turning growth around specifically. Whilst it's understandable that markets like to get excited, they jump on the latest trend, it's going to take many months before we can be sure that we really have seen the end of the deflationary era. Even so, though, the trend away from government bonds and towards equities and away from emerging markets towards more traditionally safe havens, is that likely to continue? I think, again, it all depends on what happens. So let's think about emerging markets again. If we did have a big spend on infrastructure, then that requires stuff, that requires commodities, which emerging markets produce. If we did have a booming US economy and we didn't have protectionism, then again, you'd expect emerging markets to do well. Of course, what those factors would do would be to drive up the trade deficit uh, of the US, because it'd be importing commodities, it'd be importing goods from the rest of the world as the emerging market boom. And again, Mr. Trump has said he wants to eliminate the trade deficit. So would his initial actions in boosting the economy of our fiscal stimulus cause him to have a subsequent reaction whereby he then slammed on the protectionist brakes? Again, we don't know. We can't really anticipate unless, until we know the kind of people he appoints, the kind of economists he listens to. And of course, we have to allow for Congress, which has its own agenda, which is less protectionist, more on the tax cutting side. So inevitably will end up with something that Mr. Trump doesn't want and Congress doesn't exactly want something in the middle. And I suspect we'll be talking about these questions for months to come. Thank you very much, Philip Coggan. Thank you. And what do you think? Will the Trump slump in the emerging world persist? You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. On to our next story now. Dark days indeed for American free traders. As President Obama says the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade deal between 12 Pacific Rim countries, will not pass in this session of Congress. With Mr Trump on the horizon, it probably will not pass at all. Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor, joins me on the line now from Shanghai. Simon, can we now write the TPP off? Is the deal dead in the water? The TPP is dead for all intents and purposes. If Hillary Clinton had won the election, there's a chance they would have been able to push it through during the lame duck session of the Congress. 
Trump, though, made very clear that that he thinks the deal is terrible. With his surprise triumph in the election, there's basically no chance of passage. Congressional leaders, both from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, have said they're not going to go ahead with it. And the White House has acknowledged that the deal is dead from the American standpoint. But it's a deal that has 12 member nations. And so the other 11, there's a chance that they might be able to band together uh, and salvage something from the wreckage. Uh, the chances of that are quite slim, but it is something that people are talking about. Uh, there's a meeting where a lot of them will be together this weekend, the APEC meeting in Lima, Peru. And this is one of the items that they'll be talking about on the sidelines. Though, of course, this is not the only trade game in town for Asia, is it? I mean, there, there are other initiatives that might also be discussed there. There's one involving the Southeast Asian countries, China, India and Japan as well, which looks potentially bigger. How do prospects for that look? Right. So that deal, and, and not to get bogged down in alphabet soup, but that deal is known as the RCEP. The RCEP is looking like it's close to completion. Uh, initially, they were aiming for this year. It's possible it might carry over until, or quite likely, they'll carry over until next year with it. So that might seem to be a good thing. But the fact is that the RCEP is much less ambitious than the TPP. Um, there'll be lots of different standards for the different member states. It's focused on tariff cutting. The TPP was billed as being a new deal for the 21st century that was going to be getting at a lot of kind of behind the border barriers to trade. You know, it's entirely possible that the RCEP will pass. But in terms of moving forward, the global free trade agenda it's a much smaller deal. So with the collapse also, or likely collapse, of the transatlantic deal between the US and, and the EU, are we seeing a sort of definitive end to American leadership in world's trade talks? Uh, well, I suppose nothing lasts forever, so I wouldn't say it's a definitive end, but based on everything that we've heard from Donald Trump, uh, based on the groundswell of opposition in America to the TPP as well as to the agreement with, with Europe that you mentioned, it would seem that for the next few years at least, we're not going to be see America leading any kind of big free trade push that said, as we know, Donald Trump's agenda is very fuzzy and his ideology also seems very malleable. So I wouldn't entirely rule out that at some point he might uh, revisit things. Um, certainly the, the death of the TPP is something that in terms of the projection of American power in Asia, uh, it's, it's a big, big loss for them. Um, strategically, this was a key part of the uh, uh, Barack Obama pivot to Asia. Uh, and also in terms of moving forward the free trade agenda, uh, it's been a long time since there's been a big, ambitious regional deal. Um, there's been a lot of progress made over the years with, with tariff cutting, and so really the focus now was supposed to be on the behind-the-border barriers. That's what TPP was aiming at. Um, without American leadership, it's it's hard to see that kind of thing going forward. And from where you're sitting in, in China, is this being greeted by the government there with, with some satisfaction? They will not be disappointed to see TPP fail. China, of course, was, was on the outside of TPP. Initially, they viewed that as America's uh, containment strategy. From the American standpoint, it was more about trying to have what they viewed as a high-quality trade agreement with complex things agreed to, and they didn't think they could get that with having China on the inside of it. But China was very concerned about being uh, left out. It would have been bad for uh, their supply chain that they've developed, um, and it would have been uh, negative for their economic leadership of the region. So this does create an opening for China to try to move into. The deal that you mentioned with the Southeast Asian states and, uh, and India um, is one thing that they'll be pushing forward to try to assert their trade leadership in the 
the region. But their trade agenda is much less developed than the American agenda. Uh, and so the notion that they could somehow replace America in leading global free trade, it's, it's still far too early to, to see that. Simon Rabinovich, Asia Economics Editor, thank you. Finally, the Reserve Bank will hereafter make arrangements to limit the share of high denomination notes. In a surprise speech on television last week, Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, announced that the two highest denomination rupee notes, the 500 and 1,000 rupees, would be withdrawn from circulation almost immediately. Let us fight corruption and black money. Let us ensure that the nation's wealth benefits the poor. Stan Pinyal, our South Asia business and finance correspondent, is on the line from Mumbai. Stan, as I understand it, these two notes accounted for some 86% of cash in circulation. If that sort of money is suddenly withdrawn, you'd expect a certain amount of chaos. Is that what's happened? Yes, very much so. All of a sudden, pretty much all the money that anybody had in their wallet was worthless in shops. And in order to be worth anything, would have to be processed through the banking system. As you would expect, uh, people uh, rushed to banks uh, as soon as they reopened after a two-day bank holiday. And the queues, uh, either at banks or at ATMs, uh, have been snaking around the block ever since. Am I right in thinking that Narendra Modi, a man famous for not apologising, has actually apologised? about some of the disruption that's been caused? Yeah, so, so certainly there seems to have been much more disruption than, than people realised. At the beginning, people thought you'd have maybe three, four days of, of some kind of disruption, people having a hard time finding cash. But actually, all sorts of little things seem to have come in the way. So a new note that was launched for 2,000 rupees actually doesn't work in ATMs. They all need to be recalibrated. And that hasn't happened. And it couldn't happen because the whole thing was completely secret. The government argues that in order for this scheme to be successful, successful, people had to be surprised. Otherwise, they would have liquidated. People holding these stocks of so-called black money would have liquidated them beforehand. So the government's tried to respond uh, as best it can. There is a lot of patience, I have to say, uh, in the country. A lot of people I've spoken to are quite supportive of the of the move. Black money corruption is perceived to be a big problem. Narendra Modi is perceived to have a mandate to combat it. The question is, how long is the patience going to last? People were expecting three or four days of inconvenience. We're now at, at a week's inconvenience. And some people are saying this could go on until the end of the year or even further. Indeed, I remember when I lived in India reading an, uh, a number in the newspaper which implied that I was among the top 75,000 taxpayers in the country. And believe me, I certainly wasn't among the top 75,000 earners. Avoiding taxes is a way of life in India, isn't it? Is this going to help? Well, so only 4% of people pay taxes in India anyway. That's not necessarily because they're all tax dodgers. But, for example, anybody who has agricultural income doesn't pay taxes. And the thresholds are relatively high, or rather incomes are, are very low. There is a crying need for reform of direct taxation. Interestingly, India is going at the same time through a, a sweeping reform of indirect taxation. It's in the process of introducing this goods and services tax in which all tax rates across the country are going to be harmonized, which is a, a huge reform. Some people are asking whether India can endure this much reform in such a short period of time. And there is some question as whether this kind of highly disruptive demonetization is necessarily the one that gives you the biggest bang for the buck, as it were. Though when it was first announced, orthodox economists were 
by and large, overwhelmingly supportive, weren't they? I mean, has, has that been dented by the experience of the past few days? Yeah, certainly. I mean, the costs, uh, the costs are bigger than people expected. And the benefits aren't clear. So the big debate is what, what are the fiscal implications of demonetization? At the beginning, one line that was pushed a little bit by, by the government was there is going to be maybe 20% of these notes uh, that aren't going to come back into circulation. If those notes don't come back into circulation after January 1st, they are going to be worthless, that means that banknotes, which are a liability of a a central bank, it's a liability that the central bank has to make good, all of a sudden those could be eliminated from the central bank's balance sheet, and as a result, uh, the central bank would have all this money that it could pass on to the government, which is its only shareholder. Economists have now established that actually life is not that kind for the government, and in fact that argument that this will result in a big fiscal windfall for the government has has somewhat abated over the last few days. Stan Pignal, thank you. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about India's demonetization, visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,